Thank you, Jesus. That's awesome. That dovetails uh, into what I was hearing from the Lord while we were worshiping uh, this morning. What a great time of worship. That was awesome. And uh, I was sitting with the Lord, holding my kids, and uh, I just got this word about how I walk as a believer. And I got the, the, the contrast between convincing and proclaiming. And how much of my life I have veered into the Holy Spirit's lane. I'll convince you. If you give me enough time, I'll convince you. And as we see Jesus when he's ministering to the disciples about the Holy Spirit coming, his spirit. This wasn't like, it's three in one, we don't have our brains fully around that. But this was Jesus' own spirit. He's ministering. This spirit, my spirit, the spirit that's inside of me, my spirit, I'm going to give to you, and he will convince. And so often we as believers think, we're going to do the convincing. Because I've got all the theological points. And I know some 16 to 18 cylinder words that will just, I mean, I'm going to keep you on your toes. I'll convince you. And this morning, as we were singing, I'm like, and I had no idea what Trey was going to share. He texted me this morning. He's like, hey, can I share a few minutes? I said, absolutely. And I had no idea what he was going to share, but it dovetails into what the Holy Spirit was reminding me of, is that our job is not to convince. Our job is to proclaim. When we carry this gospel, and I've shared this here before, it's been a long time, but when uh, World War II came to a close, there was no Twitter. So Obviously, how would anyone even know? There was no Facebook even, folks. This, I'm good, it's good everyone's sitting down. There was no internet. So no one even knew. But news still had a way of traveling. And you see it in old films. We are familiar with the concept of a, of a newsboy. They'd have the little bag around, the, their little newspaper bag around their shoulder and they would be tossing newspapers, and in the big cities where there were people around, they would be proclaiming the, t- the headlines. The war's over, the war's over, come and read all about it, and they're tossing the newspaper. You're familiar with that picture? I know it's been a long time. We're into Twitter, like if we can't look at it like this, it probably didn't happen. But that's how they, news traveled, and I got that this morning as we share the gospel, as we go forth that, that kid with the newspapers had no basis other than that's what the news says is the war is over. So how many people do you think argue with that newsboy? No one. What's the point? You could say, no, the war is not over. The kid's going to keep running and throwing newspapers declaring that the war is over. That's, the war is over. No, it's not. The war's still over, crazy guy. The war's over. And he's going to keep throwing the newspaper, proclaiming. He did not feel that it was his job to stop at each house, read the newspaper, and argue with everyone until they believed it. I got this this morning. This is not the sermon, but we're going to get to the sermon. We usually start preaching at 11, so I got six more minutes here. But this is our commission Go into all the world proclaiming there is a point in time. Discipleship is what happens. But our job in the world is just proclaim the gospel. We think every time someone disagrees with us, we've got to lock horns. 
wrestle it to the ground, convince them, no, no, you're wrong, and I'm right. And no one's ever been argued into a changed perspective anyways. Our job in this deal is to proclaim the war is over. Just proclaim it. And if somebody wants to argue with you, the Holy Spirit will give us wisdom on when, when to go deeper with somebody, but it's probably not going to be. In fact, I dare say in my life, it's never been at a point of contention that the Holy Spirit has given me the green light to go. It's never been when, when we're, we're locking horns and it's like, buddy, I'm ready to go, and I got all the verses. Everybody ever, anybody else ever felt like that? I got all the verses. I can bury you with verses right now and not convince them of anything. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Instead of just loving on them, proclaiming the gospel, and then when the Holy Spirit gives you the green light, there will always be a softening on their end to discuss the gospel deeper. Good morning and welcome to Revelation Rock, to our family room, to the place where we gather to worship Jesus, to exalt the name of Jesus above everything that has a name on this earth and everything that has a name in eternity. Welcome. It's good to see you. It's good to be here to worship Jesus. So this, this morning, the actual sermon was not that. The sermon that I would like to share this morning is titled simply Friday. We started last week. The sermon last week was titled Thursday. And my intent, the intent that I have, that I bring this morning is to help us to ponder and to consider the story from 2,000 years ago of the Thursday night, Thursday, Thursday night, when Jesus was betrayed, was led into Friday when he was crucified, and next week, I'll give you a little glimpse, next Sunday's sermon is titled Sunday. I'm excited about that, but I'm, I'm excited about today because I believe there's an encouragement here that is for specific people that are here this morning. Maybe it's somebody that's never been here before. Maybe it's someone that comes periodically. Maybe it's, I've already been ministered to by it. Maybe it's for people that are here every week and some of all of the above. So we're going to review a little bit of the timeline that leads up to Friday. Started on, obviously it started on Christmas, but we're going to pick up on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Last week we looked at the Passover and how Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, the sacrifice once and for all, parallels and perfectly aligns with the Passover sacrifice from 1,500 years earlier when the Jews were being freed from the land of Egypt. This isn't an accident. This is intentional. By design, on the, on the same night, on the anniversary of when the children of Israel killed lambs and put the blood on the doorposts, which a door, you know, there's three doorposts that, if you rearrange them, align to make a cross. The blood that was shed by the lambs was put on the doorposts so that the angel of death would pass over and they would experience life. On that same anniversary is when Jesus institutes the new covenant. He said it was written in his blood. This isn't an accident. But it starts on Palm Sunday. The triumphal entry of Jesus. And from the perspective of the disciples, see, we, we read these stories. We read the Gospels. We read the Gospel accounts of this period of time. And we read them, rightfully so, this is not a correction, rightfully so, we read them from this side of the cross. 
Like we know when Jesus comes in on Palm Sunday, we know how it ends. We know Jesus, yes, he goes through this sham trial and all, and he's accused wrongfully and he's persecuted and then he's crucified, but we know Sunday's coming. We write songs about it and we should. This is not inaccurate. But for a moment, I want us to take, take a moment and go back to where the disciples were this night, where the disciples were leading up to this. Up to this point, we looked at this last week, that there had been predominantly when the Lord rescued his people out of bondage, which is where the Israelites found themselves when Jesus was on this earth, when God rescued them, it was predominantly through a militant leader. Throughout the 1500, it was a precedent had been set. And so the disciples, there was a layer of that that was a little bit anticipatory. Maybe this is coming. We could be ready. We see little glimpses of it, and we tend to gloss over them because we know what was coming. They didn't know exactly what was coming. So could this triumphal entry into Jerusalem possibly end with the overthrow of Rome later in the week? Like, get into, their, get into their character. I invite you this morning, get there. Because could it have ended with that? All these people, the masses, were laying down palm branches. Jesus, he's coming. And we could rise up. If we'd all rise up right now, we could throw Rome out of Jerusalem possibly forever. We could possibly establish the eternal kingdom of Jerusalem right now. Remember, this isn't outside of the realm of possibility. Because 1,500 years ago, that same week, what happened after the Passover? We're, we're maybe a little foggy on this, but after the Passover, the Israelites rolled out of Egypt with all their stuff. And the Egyptian army was destroyed behind them. And we're like, well, but that was 1,500 years later. Yes, but the precedent had been set. The Jewish culture at this time especially, even today, but especially at this time, was rich in history. They understood very, very clearly the details of the Passover and what was to follow. So could this have been in their mind? We're ready. We're ready. We see little tiny glimpses of it. I have misplaced this verse. There's a passage earlier in, I think it's in Luke or Matthew, where um, ah, Luke twenty two thirty eight, 38, where it says that the disciples tell Jesus, they're ready to roll. This is Thursday night. They're like, Lord, we only have two swords. Now we read over that. No one, we don't even park there, do we? I mean, I've never preached a sermon on Luke 22, 38. We're not going to today. But there's this instance where the disciples are like, okay, Lord, but we only have two swords. Just so you know, we only have two swords. What the same hell are they going to do with swords? We know on this side of the cross, it's like, you don't need a sword for this whole deal. This is a spiritual thing. It's for all eternity. You guys, this is going to be a rough few years for you. But, but at that moment, there was a use for swords. And what did Jesus say? It would be enough. It'll be sufficient. That seems to imply to us today, Jesus is like, okay, well, we're going to do this with two swords. This is going to be one amazing revolution. We're going to start it with two swords. We find out later one of those belonged to Peter, and he was ready to use it. The Passover meal had been eaten Thursday evening. Jesus tells the disciples at that moment he will not eat or drink of this feast again until he does in his father's kingdom. There's another clue here that's like, okay, his kingdom's coming, because in a year it's going to be Passover again. That means a, to their minds could a year, they didn't know about the ascension. They didn't know the ascension was coming. They didn't know that we're going to have all this human history after this. To them, was it okay, in a year, 
the kingdom of heaven is gonna be on earth. There's this, these little glimpses in here. The new covenant was instituted, drawn out of the old, and we looked at that a little bit last week. And then we see there's some things start to go in the natural what would seem to be awry. Like, what's going on with Judas? I'm concerned. Maybe he shouldn't have been in this group. What's going on with Judas? Because we see Judas leave early to do what he will do. Now, as I was preparing, just meditating on this story the last, like, three months, I've been really thinking about this Thursday, Friday, and Sunday messages. How did the Old Testament, how did the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the uh, chief priests, these guys didn't have vocational jobs outside of religion. That was their job, was to know the scriptures, to know the scrolls, to know the major prophets, the minor prophets, the Pentateuch. They knew all of it. They knew all of it word for word. How did they miss the 30 pieces of silver prophecy? Somewhere along the lines, they missed it. There's a prophecy in the Old Testament that the Son of God would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, and somebody in the Sanhedrin cut a deal for 30 pieces of silver. How did they miss it? We're not, like, we think about this like, like maybe our pastors today would have been in the Sanhedrin. We don't, we're not, the pa- there's not a pastor today, I shouldn't say this, I, this is perhaps a larger blanket that I mean to lay, but we, we're not, these guys, this is all they ever did was memorize the Bible, the Old Testament. This is all they ever did. I don't know a human that has that kind of, today, that they know, they, under, they rememorized the punctuation of these books, church. They shouldn't have missed this. Wait a second. It should have been a, oh, heavens, this, we're doing the deal for 30 pieces of silver with a guy that claims he's the son of God. Maybe that should give us pause. They missed it. Somehow the Sanhedrin, all the religious leaders, blinded or rather deceived They missed it. They head to the garden after this new covenant. This is all Thursday still. We haven't got to today's. They head to the garden to pray. Jesus goes off by himself to pray. Sometimes when we read this, we see it's like, oh, here it comes. The disciples knew what was coming because Jesus went off by himself. Jesus often went off by himself and prayed. There's still no connections about what all is happening. Now, Jesus had told them, I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised three days later. But Jesus, they, had, they were so stuck in the natural. We missed this, that there was a spiritual thing happening. They go to the garden to pray. Then Judas and a bunch of soldiers come to arrest Jesus. By some counts, five to 600 soldiers, potentially. I wasn't there, I didn't count them. But historical accounts, they lead us to, the, it wasn't four or five guys. It was a bunch. When, Jesus, when they ask, they're looking for Jesus, he declares that I am. John records that they fell to the ground. The magnitude of that declaration drove them to the ground. Peter then draws his sword. He lops off the ear of one of the servants. Jesus promptly heals it. At this point, I want to take a minute and just kind of review a little bit. Earlier in the evening, Peter had told Jesus He would do anything with him. He would never leave him. In fact, he went so far, Lord, you shouldn't be washing my feet. 
I should be washing yours. He was ready to die with Jesus. He had declared. And then we see him denying that he even knew him. And that's always been, you know, we, we're pretty hard on Peter for that. But I think about all of these little clues that are in Scripture that looked like there was a potential militant uprising coming. And then the whole deal, the conversation about the swords. We've only got two swords. That'll be sufficient. Peter's, I got one of them, and I'm ready to roll. And he manifests this. He's like, I'm ready. They come to take Jesus. I'm going to start slicing and dicing. At that point, I believe Peter started reeling. He slices off the Malchus ear, and Jesus picks it up, touches his ear, and it's made whole. At that point, what was Peter, what are we doing? You said two swords would be enough. I'm ready to use it, and now you're healing. Like, I believe he began reeling in his emotions, and his, what is going on? This doesn't make sense. Jesus is put through a sham of a trial. Jesus went through two trials. One was a religious trial. The second one was a civil trial. The religious trial took place with the the chief priests. This takes place during the middle of the night. There's an entire sermon there. We're not going to do it today. Also during the night, Peter denies knowing Jesus three times before the rooster crows. The irony of the religious trial going on at night, this is out of order, but I kind of want to talk about it just a second. John 3, 19 through 20, Jesus talks about how men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. The irony of the trial to convict Jesus of heresy Verse 19 reads, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. It's Jesus. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. When was Jesus' trial that convicted him of heresy? In the middle of the night. Lest their deeds would be exposed. At this point, And I don't know that you guys are all, I don't know that we're all there, and it's okay that we're not all there. But if you're there, if you're picturing yourself with the disciples, thinking about giving up at this point. We talked talked about it last week. Several of the gospels record that all the disciples left him. They were scattered. Jesus prophesied that. He said, they'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And they do. Has anybody in this room today Nobody has to raise their hands. I know the answer to this, but I'm asking a rhetorical question anyways. Anyone in here ever felt like giving up? I have. I say that with a smile because I chose not to. I chose to sometimes give up. This brings us to Friday. Friday comes, obviously, in the middle of the night in the midst of this trial, this sham trial where there's just accusations being hurled at Jesus. He's this, he's that. He's a heretic. He claimed to be the son of God. Jesus had never lifted a finger against anybody except the religious elites in the temple. But that was just to drive them out of the temple. 
there had been attempts at seizing Jesus many times through his ministry. They had all been diffused. Every single time anyone had attempted to seize Jesus, and it was, there is many scriptures that talk about either they intended to, they wanted to, several where they talk about they attempted, and they were all diffused. Jesus escaped every time. As the disciples, you would be thinking, I would be thinking, why would this be any different? Why, why wouldn't he escape again? John chapter 10, verse 39 reads, therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hands. Jesus' disciples had witnessed on two occasions, one in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, and one in Matthew 21, verses 12 through 15, it's recorded, Jesus cleansing the temple, driving out the money changers. In one account, in the first account, you see Jesus doing it with whip, with a whip. Where was this guy this night? Where was Jesus with the whip? Peter had his sword. Where was Jesus with his whip? Where was this guy tonight? Friday went from bad to worse for Jesus' followers. All their hope of a successful revolution faded and died on the cross. There was to be no revolution. There had to have been times during the day on Friday into Saturday and even Sunday morning that his followers felt despair settling in as a new way of life. As Jesus was led from the dark of the night religious trial, we talked about the irony of that, to the crazy, like, just preposterous civil trial with Pilate and King Herod. What a weird situation. It's a difficult situation I have learned in studying this. It's a very difficult situation for us to understand in our culture today. There was some weird stuff with governance going on back then. But what a strange situation that his own religious leaders, whom he had baffled in their synagogue over and over again with his understanding of the word, they wanted to drag him into a civil court and seek the death penalty for him. Remember, this dude was dangerous. He'd been healing all who were sick and oppressed. Seems like the kind of guy you wouldn't want to put to death. Remember, we're reading this story. I talked about this before, and I want us to remind, I want to remind us, we're reading this and always have, and we should, from this side of the cross. But the context that these boys were living in, these girls were living in, was pretty bleak. We're not going to park on the bleak side of this, but today we're focusing on Friday. And I want to think about these disciples. Think about all of the accusations. I want us to think today, as we carry the gospel today, as you carry the gospel into your workplace, into your family, your friends, your social settings, your community, we're carrying the same gospel they carried. Imagine all of the accusations the questioning of family members, all the critical friends' words that they felt the need to share with these disciples. Because remember, we talked about this last week. They had departed from Moses as their method of righteousness and aligned lockstep with this new guy, with Jesus. They had walked away from the establishment religion. 
They had said, we're with him. We're going to do ridiculous things. They ate. They harvested wheat to eat on the Sabbath. They were witness to people being healed on the Sabbath, and they stuck with that guy. They had followed that guy. They had put all of their hopes into that guy. The Messiah, they said, this is the guy. Come to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth, and we're with him. We're willing to go with you. We'll go anywhere with you. They had been saved countless times by this Messiah in the natural. Why would this time be any different? All of the miracles they had seen, why would this time be any different? But during that choosing to follow Jesus, don't think for a minute it was without accusation by friends and family. They had become social outcasts in many circles. We know this. Jesus was really super popular one day and an outcast the next, and really super popular another day and an outcast the next. And they had weathered this storm. These guys had done it. They'd followed him, not flawlessly. They had some questions about who he was some different times, but they had gotten to the point where Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And they got it right. And yet now, their Messiah, their Jesus the Christ, was dying on a, crucified on a tree. All of the accusations, all of the questioning family members saying, are you sure about this Jesus fellow? Remember, he's from Nazareth. Are you sure about this guy? His dad was a carpenter. He's not even like a Pharisee. I don't think you should hitch your cart to that horse. Be careful. These uprisings, they can be dangerous. I don't know if I would get in with that crowd. He's eating with wine-bibbers. He's eating with gluttons. He's eating with tax collectors. Sure you want to be with his ilk? And in this moment, on Friday... Don't think that that didn't come back to them. <coughs> All of the thoughts of he isn't the Messiah. He's just another guy. And the list goes on. I want to talk about something here. For us as believers, during times of doubt, our memories often withhold the truth. Somebody told me years ago that your memory's a liar. It like edits things for us. You know that? Your memory will edit. It'll cut things out. And it's like, eh, that was really terrible. Just kind of block that out. La, la, la. That was not that bad. But they can also withhold the truth. Our natural memories aren't always our best friends. Understand, church, these guys, these disciples that are going with all this wrestling and doubt that leaves them, by Sunday morning, they've locked themselves away trying to figure out where to go from here. They had witnessed more miracles than all generations of humans before and after. You say, I don't know about that. I encourage you to read through the Gospels and find all the accounts where, Jesus, where it's recorded that he healed all that were sick, all that were oppressed. He healed all of them. It's not one time that he's in one place and he heals all of them. It's over and over and over, these guys had witnessed this. They'd seen Lazarus come out of the tomb. 
They'd seen blind guys receive sight multiple times. They'd seen leprosy cleansed. They'd seen Jesus walk on water, defying all of the laws that they knew. These guys knew these laws of the Sea of Galilee. You don't walk on water. Buoyancy doesn't work. They'd seen all of these things, and yet on Friday, in light of all of their current circumstances, their memories were lying to them. Oftentimes as believers, when the one thing we're looking at, believing for, or facing down doesn't pan out like we thought, all of the other confirming things that we've experienced fade. Anybody here relate to that? I can relate to that. Where in the moment, we can see God come through a hundred times, and the one time where we're questioning how this is going to pan out, those other hundred just fade. They just flee from our memory. We make it all the way to John chapter 19. This is the end of Jesus' crucifixion. And this has been, I don't want anybody here or anybody listening to this to ever think that this is an exhaustive look. We're looking at a couple of things, just a couple of aspects this morning of this Friday. In John chapter 19, we're going to pick up in verse 25. Jesus had been convicted it's, again, a sham trial. They had nothing for him. Pilate even says, it's recorded over and over that Pilate's like, hey, he's, he's innocent. He's not done anything wrong. He's innocent. He's not done anything wrong. He's innocent. He's not done anything wrong. Uh, whatever, I'll please the people. Go crucify him. They're like, whoa, we can't crucify him because, you know, we, can't, we don't want to get our hands dirty. This is Passover week and stuff. We could do it another week, but we went, let's just do it now. Could you do it for us? Sure. We'll keep you happy. Crucify the Romans had crucified Jesus. He was hanging on a tree, picking up in verse 25 of John chapter 19, we read, now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Verse 26, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. From that hour, that disciple took her to his own home and implied as he cared for her as his mother. So Mary Magdalene, a couple of other ladies, John and Mary, Jesus' mother, were the only one of his followers who made it all the way to the cross. They're the only ones who are still identifying as his followers. And the only ones recorded as still following him right up through his death on the cross. What did these, what did these folks have that was different? What did they understand? There had to be something. The rest of the crew all bailed. There was, there was a couple of accounts in the Gospels where there was some others that were a distance off. What did these guys have? They weren't afraid. There was something, or they were standing there in spite of their fear. There was some connection they had with their Messiah that was greater than anything the Romans could inflict or the religious elites could inflict. They had a connection with the Messiah. They had a grasp of something beyond the natural. 
We're going to look at these three people fairly quickly. First, we're going to look at Mary, was Jesus' mother. She's, we reference her at Easter periodically, how difficult it must have been for her to see Jesus, her oldest son, accused, beaten, destroyed physically, and crucified. I can't imagine that. But I want us to, I want us to look at something that's, that is unique to Mary. Realize, church, every other human on earth had to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. Mary knew it. She, was, she conceived Jesus as a virgin. She knew it. There was no doubt. She would never forget the moment the angel appeared. She would never forget that first movement that baby Jesus, the Son of God, moved in her stomach or womb. Never. She would never forget that. There was no need for her to believe which is a little, that sounds sacrilegious to people. She knew it. Even Joseph, there was a measure of faith he had to believe. Like, I believe that this is the Son of God. But he didn't know it like Mary knew it. It was impossible for it to be anything else. No human anywhere in history has ever conceived a child without a physical relationship with another human. Mary had. So that day, she knew Beyond knowing this was the Son of God, the King of glory. She knew beyond shadow of any mortal doubt that Jesus was the Son of God. It says in Luke chapter 2, verse 19, we read it at Christmas time, Mary treasured up all these things, pondered them in her heart. This is found in the chapter of Luke that's talking about Jesus' birth. This is my daughter's favorite chapter in the whole Bible. So we read it quite often. Every time I read it, I think about why was she treasuring these things up? All of the things that she treasured up in Luke 2 had to be on repeat, on replay in her mind the day that Jesus died. She remembered the wise men. She remembered the shepherds. She remembered the conception of Jesus. And I'm sure she remembered all of the other stories that he created as a little boy growing up. But those moments of Luke chapter 2 were on repeat in her mind this day. She had no question. There was nothing the Roman government or the religious elites could take from her or do to her that would cause her to leave her oldest son and the son of God. The second one I want to look at today is Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene is one of the most celebrated characters in the New Testament, but we don't know that much about her. But the one thing we do know, if you want to bring up Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, I want to reveal, I want to show us one of the scriptures that tells us who she is. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him. And also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and disease. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna and many others, these women were helping to support them out of their own means. 
Mary was sold out for Jesus. And why, you might ask? She had had seven demons cast out of her. The bondage that seven demons could put on a person, I don't think any of us can really relate to. But she had an understanding of the love and forgiveness of Jesus that compelled her to never walk away from him, no matter what. You see, this is another thing we don't really fully grasp in our church culture today. At that point in time in human history, in Jewish history, you get possessed by a demon, there's nothing to do but stone you to death. There was no casting out demons at that point. It wasn't a thing where, well, I'll speak to you in the name of Jesus. There was no, that wasn't a thing. We stoned people that were possessed by demons. That was the only way to get rid of the demon. Jesus freed her from that. Not only from the bondage of the seven demons, but from the sentence that went with that. The social sentence. She was an outcast. She would never be anybody or have anything. She was a demon-possessed woman. She's nobody. Socially, she had nothing. And what did Jesus give her? He gave her belonging. He extended love and forgiveness and freedom to her. And she understood it. And we understand that she understood it because of the events unfolding on Thursday and Friday and on into Sunday. She had an understanding of the love and forgiveness of Jesus that compelled her to never walk away from him, no matter what. Anything that she saw or didn't see, anything she experienced or didn't experience was of no consequence in her life after she had received deliverance and the love and forgiveness of Jesus. He couldn't have shaken her if he wanted to. Matthew chapter 27, verses 57 through 66. We're gonna keep rolling just a few minutes. Is everybody okay if we keep going for a few minutes? Okay, stay with me. We gotta, we're landing the plane. Um, you can put your seat trays in the upright position, put your seat backs. We're gonna be circling and landing soon. Verse 57, now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. This is Matthew 27, verses 57 through 66. Who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. Verse 59, when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. He rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. Verse 61, Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite of the tomb. 62, the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how the deceiver said, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead, so the last deception will be worse than the first. 65, Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Verse 61, we see Mary Magdalene was there. She followed Jesus all the way to the tomb. There's an important perspective. We don't understand in our day and age we have GPSs, you're trying to find somewhere, you just pin it. If someone can send you a pinned location, you can find it. Hit go on your GPS and you go there. In this day and age, there was 
a reason that she went there. She wanted to go there because she was coming back. She intended to return. She was coming back, and she needed to know exactly where they laid him. And we see this play out. If you come back next week, we'll see she came back. She intended to return to this place. She would not leave the side of her Messiah. There was a measure. We don't understand this today, but there was a measure of danger for her to be there. This is the end of the day. We're getting... That you can say, well, you're speculating, preacher. I understand there is some speculation to this, but there was a measure of danger to her being there in the region of tombs, in the, in the dark of the evening. She would not leave his side. Then we see, and this is just a side note, but I want to mention it while we're coming through this because we're not going to come back to a bunch of Friday stuff on Sunday. But we see in verse 63 The chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate saying, Sir, we remember that while he was still alive, how that deceiver said, after three days I will rise. How did these guys remember and nobody else did? They remembered. He said he's going to rise and we don't want the disciples to steal him away. They were so clouded. I I have to believe, and again, you could say this is speculation, this is my speculation. I fully own this speculation I got to believe that somebody among the chief priests and the Sadducees was like, what if he actually does raise from the dead after three days? Because these guys had seen miracles too. They had to wonder. They're like, we cannot let this happen. We have committed and we're going to ride this thing all the way out. Let's guard the tomb so nobody, nobody proves that Jesus could raise from the dead. This just makes Sunday better, everyone. This, what we're witnessing right here, just makes Sunday all the better. We don't want him to write. We don't want anybody to think he rose from the dead. You know what we'll do? We'll secure it in the natural. We will secure the tomb in the natural. That did not pan out for them. Third one I want to look at is John. The disciple John had a revelation of being loved by Jesus that propelled him from the garden to the sham religious trials, past the mob rule of the civil trial, and all the way to the cross, to the very scene of Jesus' unfair but incredibly timed sacrificial death. Understanding how we are loved lends us to understanding the things going on around us. As I was praying about how to organize these three witnesses I just felt like I was supposed to talk about John at the end. And it kind of has dawned on me as we've been talking that for us to understand how we are loved, it would lend us to understanding the things going on around us. 1 John chapter 4, verses 17 through 19 reads, Love has been perfected among us in this. This is the same guy. This is the guy that was standing at the foot of the cross that wrote this in 1 John chapter 4. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have a boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. 
earlier on Thursday evening in John chapter 13, verse 8, we see Peter arguing with Jesus about washing his feet. You don't have to bring it up if you, I don't know where you're at, James. Peter argued with Jesus. He's not, don't be washing my feet. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Peter struggled. And I, just full disclosure, I probably identify more with Peter than anybody else in the New Testament. I just, the full transparency, I see the things he says, things he does, and I'm like, ah, I could be there. Peter struggled to receive from Jesus. Right up to the very end, he struggled to receive. Now we see, we get to the other side of the cross, Jesus helps him receive once and for all. We get all the way to the day of Pentecost, and buddy, Peter received like there's no tomorrow. But this night, he struggled to receive. Go on to verse 23 of the same chapter. Verse 23, now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Do you think John had a problem receiving from Jesus? He was awkward. He was so comfortable, he was awkwardly laying across him. John did not struggle receiving from Jesus. It was not difficult. And what did that enable John to do? Walk free of fear all the way to the foot of the cross. The love of God compels us. We don't have to be fearful. Look around. Is the world, we've talked about this, is the world full of fear? I dare say fear is the currency, and we've talked about this. We're not on the gold standard anymore. We ain't on the dollar standard. We're on the fear standard in this culture today. But as believers, we can identify with John. We can allow the love of God to purify us, to cleanse us, to give us a boldness in the day of judgment. Give us a boldness, no matter where we find ourselves, to be able to approach the foot of the cross. In the view of all the Roman soldiers, everybody, the religious elites who had just crucified him. Don't think that there was no one around when John walked up to talk to Jesus. Peter in the courtyard's like, I don't know him. I've never known him. This is the guy who couldn't receive from him earlier in the evening. And John walks through, he follows all the way through, all the way up to the foot of the cross and just receives. Just receives. The love of God that we experience today the forgiveness that Mary experienced, the love that John experienced. And like Mary, Jesus' mother, the moment we were born again, if you're here today and you were born again, you know exactly the moment you were born again. I'm not putting pressure on anybody, but I remember just with marked clarity. You don't have to convince, you know, I don't have to, I think maybe, I, I don't remember. I remember marked clarity. We can walk with boldness and courage. We can look at this story and see things that are for us. There's some stuff that's not for us. There's some things that are in this story. We can allow the Holy Spirit to teach us, to give us clarity, to give us the boldness to speak truth to proclaim, just like the newsboy, the end of World War II. The war is over. Christ is risen. 
Are you sure the war is over? Christ is risen. We don't have to get down and discuss every difference of opinion with every believer we encounter or every unbeliever we encounter. Proclaim the good news of Jesus. With boldness, free of fear of persecution, free of fear of accusation, free to receive from Jesus. If you would stand with me this morning as we close, I'd like to close with a declaration over us this Palm Sunday. We declare with the word that we are the righteousness of God created in Christ Jesus. We remember the sacrifice that Jesus has made on our behalf and we declare that we are totally and completely loved by him. We receive the love of the Father And as we do, we can minister that reconciliation to this lost world we live in. In light of this great salvation, we declare that we have hope, that we are led by the peace that passes understanding, and we walk with confidence in the midst of uncertainty. The promises of God in Christ Jesus are yes and amen. And therefore, we declare that we are blessed and highly favored, blessed in the city and blessed in the country when we rise up And when we lie down, when we go out and when we come in, we realize that this world is not finished, not fixed yet. But we choose hope. We treat ourselves with the medicine of laughter and joy. Here at The Rock, we don't make light of sin and contrast. We make much of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who broke the power of sin and darkness and who alone holds the keys to death and hell and the grave. We rejoice this morning in light of the resurrection. We look forward with hope to when we see Jesus face to face. Bow with me if you would. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that we can declare these things with confidence. Thank you that you are good, always and only good. Thank you that we may experience you through your word, through the spirit of Christ Jesus, by which we can cry out, Abba, Papa, we can come boldly to the throne room of grace to receive help. Lord, I just pray courage over this body as we go from this place, boldness, that the love of Jesus would flow from every crack and crevice in our lives, that it would coat every word that we speak. Your grace would just flow freely from our lives. Father, I thank you so much for Jesus. Author, and the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. And it's in his name that we pray all of these things. We make this declaration in Jesus' name. Amen.